shining a light on podcasts and videos that have caught our attention. The Spotlight with Jen Spiker. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the free Vision Christian Media app. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. In Judges chapter 8, Gideon and his 300 men, this is the end of the story, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkot, give my troops some bread, they're worn out. And I'm still pursuing Zebah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Now this is where we come to resolution seven. And resolution seven basically says this, I will stay off God's throne. I will stay off God's throne. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill, and this is Today with Jeff Vines. Solely depending on God, being truly obedient to God, hearing His great encouragement. We see examples of these throughout Judges 6 and 7 and in the story of Gideon. In this episode of Today with Jeff Vines, we're getting close to the end of the Unpossible series from Judges and the resolutions we find in these verses. In today's message, Pastor Jeff is talking about staying off God's throne. Here he is to explain more. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 8. We're in verses 4 through 9, and we're in a series called Unpossible. When we started this series, we said that there is a way, and the Bible clearly teaches this, that As Christ followers, there is no need for us to be significantly impacted by the external events, the external events that come into our lives, our demeanor, our attitude, our spiritual health, the health of our soul can remain intact no matter what's going on out in the physical world. So we've said that in order for God to be able to do what he needs to do in us, we're going to live by seven resolutions. Now, here's the problem with those seven resolutions. When you talk about evil, pain, and suffering in the world, and I go back to one of the the most common stories or examples I hear when I'm on university campuses, and inevitably someone will come up to me and always use the death or the suffering of a child. I don't know why it is, but that seems to be the place where everyone goes when they want to talk about how can we harmonize a good and merciful, loving God with the pain and suffering in the lives of the people on the earth that he's created, and especially in relationship to the innocence of a child who suffers uh, as a result of no fault of their own. So the problem with these seven resolutions is that if we're not careful, we'll take these seven resolutions, which are true in and of themselves, which are the basis, the foundation, I think, for allowing, if we respond to the external events of our lives in this manner, they serve as the basis and the foundation for God being able to do what he needs to do in us. And ultimately, it's to help people far from God come near through the conformity of the image we have in us, given to us by God, conformity of our image to the image of Jesus. And that's what Jesus does best, brings people who are far away from God, the Father, bringing them near. So even though those foundational propositions are so essential to living the Christian life, and they are. The reality is they're not meant to be things that we say to people who are suffering in their lives. They're not. These are resolutions that we make internally, that we live our lives by these resolutions. Because the reality is you can address the issue of pain, suffering, and evil 
propositionally, you can say, well, this is the reason this is happening. You can give propositions. Well, suffering means this and God does this. You can also address it from the standpoint of uh, philosophically, what is the meaning of pain, suffering, and evil in our world? And what good does it really bring? And then you can also address it existentially. How is it as a person that I can deal with the pain and suffering and the evil in the world? I'm suggesting to you that when you deal, when you come to a series like Impossible, you can't merely concentrate the entire time on uh, what we call the propositional or what God is doing in our lives, although that's important. We still have to deal with it in all three arenas, philosophically, existentially, propositionally. So the one thing I want to do is remind you that the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, deals with suffering on all three levels and in a very powerful way, which is why it's still one of the most popular pieces of literature in literary antiquity. Even if you're not a Christ follower, if not a Christian, people still pour over the book of Job because it's rich in its wealth of explaining or attempting to explain or resolve the issue of God, pain, suffering, and evil in our world. And so Job, if you know, by the end of the book, even though he goes through all of these areas or arenas of suffering, he comes to the conclusion, he says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And basically what he's saying is, before all this happened, I had no idea of the depth of the love of God and what God is capable of doing in the midst of the worst of circumstances. He says, before I'd heard about you, God, I had a, I had a propositional idea, a philosophical idea about you, God, but now I have an existential reality in that I feel your presence and I know who you are. And God you're, you're greater and you're able to do immeasurably more than I could ever ask for, hope for, or imagine. And the depth of your understanding far exceeds my own. So Job, by the end of the book, moves on this idea that he has to have an exhaustive understanding of all pain, suffering, and evil because he realizes he's finite, God is infinite. There's a point at which his mind doesn't work anymore. So he trusts that God has a complete understanding of suffering. He accepts the fact that he never will, but he also comes to the conclusion that God doesn't just throw us out there, that he gives us a prevailing presence to walk with us through the most difficult seasons, unfortunate events of our lives. Now, having said that, I also know that there are cerebral Christians who have to come to terms with a lot of this. And in fact, you and I will face conversations where people will come to us and say, look, I, I want to believe in God, but I just can't because I look at that child who's suffering, who's dying of cancer. And I see the pain and hurt and the turmoil in the life of the parents. And I just can't harmonize that with what I see in God. Or I can't harmonize that with a belief in God. Because if God existed in our mind, we say he would never allow something like this to happen. Now there's a problem with this issue. I want to do it quickly. The skeptic or the atheist who denies the existence of God because of the possibility or because of the reality of pain and suffering will sometimes go like this. The question will be phrased, I can't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. Now follow me here, this is important. I can't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. The problem is this, this statement is what we call self-defeating. It violates the very law of non-contradiction. Here's why. Once you assume evil, you're also assuming there's good in the world. You're also assuming there is a moral law that governs the categories of good and evil. You with me? So you, if once you say there's evil, you're saying there's categoric evil. Because if evil isn't absolute, then you have no complaint against God. If good and evil are just uh, relative, then there's no such thing as absolute good and evil, which means 
what you call evil, God could call good. There has to be an absolute category of evil, and I believe there is, and an absolute category of good, so that when something happens in the world, we can look at it and say that's category good or that's category evil. But in order to have categories of absolute evil and good, you have to have a moral law to govern those categories. There has to be a moral law somewhere that tells us this is good, these events are good, these events are evil. And the problem with that is if you have a moral law, you have to have what we call an absolute moral law giver. So you have to have someone that stands outside of time and space, someone who's created all things, someone who is the ultimate ethic, who gives you a moral law. Moral law cannot be given by humanity because it would be subjective. It would be a moving target. You have to have someone who's absolute to give an absolute moral law, to give the categories absolutely of good and evil. So the question itself self-destructs because there's no such thing as evil unless there's such a thing as God. You can only ask the question of evil in the context of God, not outside the context of God. Because unless there's a God, there is no absolute moral law to give us the absolute categories of good and evil. You with me? So philosophically, you can't have evil unless you have God to give us the definitive categories. Now, moving on from that, the philosophical issue and the propositional issue is the idea of love. People will then say, well, okay, if evil cannot exist outside the context of God, if God is essential to give us the absolute moral law to govern those categories of good and evil, then how can we harmonize a good God then with all the pain and suffering in the world he allows? Because quite frankly, I see some things that God allows and if I were God, I just wouldn't do that. Well, that's your first hint. You're not God. You don't have exhaustive understanding of everything that's going on around you or what God is ultimately trying to do. But you also don't have the ability to recover from all evil, pain and suffering, which we'll get to in a moment. But in the scriptures, we learn something about the heart of God. And that is the ultimate value in the universe is love. God wants a love relationship. Folks, if you, God has the potential to remove the potential of all pain, suffering, and evil. But to do that, he would have to remove your and my freedom. And to remove that would be to remove the very reason we were created in the first place, which is a love relationship. You with me? So love and relationship is what he wants. That requires free will. But because that requires free will, that does open the door to evil. Because a lot of people are going to use that free will that God gave them rather than to pursue a relationship with God. They're going to use that free will for narcissistic purposes. They're going to say, I'll reject God. I go away from God. And when I do that, I start using the world. I start manipulating the world around me for my purposes only. There's nothing bigger and beyond myself. So from a philosophical and propositional point of view, there's no, there's no way evil can exist without the belief or the idea of God because only when we get God do we get the moral law to govern the categories. And at the same time, in God's scenario, he's decided to create a world where love and relationship is possible. And the only way love, authentic love and relationship are possible is if we're given the freedom to choose or to reject the love of God. And in doing that, it opens up the the door to evil. Now, those are, those are the philosophical propositional realities, but there's an existential reality too that we've never talked about. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Let's go back and look at the death of a child because I said last week that the most difficult thing for me to do is go to a cancer, a, children, a children's cancer ward and to see all of these little children with their heads shaven and their parents 
I mean, think about watching your four-year-old child go through chemotherapy, go through the process, and you're not sure if your child's going to live. Just the fact of the pain and the suffering and the hurt is so deep. And that's why I want you to be careful with these propositions. They are good. They are true. It is the way by which we live, but it is not the way you're going to comfort a mother or father in their moment of their deepest pain. So, Let's look at this still from a philosophical point of view. It's still not going to, what I'm about to tell you again is not going to be the perfect word for a parent who's going through this at that time. We're going to get to that, but it's still something we have to deal with. Think about from God's point of view, the four victims involved in the death of a child. First, you have the parents. They're going to suffer a great loss. And even watching their child suffer is great loss. The heartache is something that most of us can't imagine. I've said before, that when God decided he's going to show us the depth of his love, what does he do? He gives us his only son. There is no greater love that a parent has for a child. There's no greater love on this in the human experience. So God wants you to be convinced of the depth of his love. So he gives you his own son. Now, parents, Psalm 23, 4 tells us that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. And I'm here to tell you as a pastor that I have, this is one, her name is Gloria. I have example after example after example of when people went through the deepest, darkest moments of their lives that God gave them a special revelation of himself that they might endure. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's still painful, it's still hurtful, but somehow God gives him a, a, a glimpse, gives them a glimpse of himself that somehow sustains them. Now, if this was the only thing and we didn't have these other three, this would not be enough. I'm simply saying, the story after story, example after example. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says that we grieve, but we don't grieve as the world grieves. So we still grieve, still part and parcel to a fallen world. And we're never gonna know what God causes, what God allows. That's not the point. The point is that God comes alongside of us. It's the same thing that Job learned. Job learned, remember? He said, my eyes, my ears had heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. He's saying that even in the midst of losing everything, and if you read the book of Job, you'll know that he suffered more than anybody we've ever known. He lost his children, his goods, his friends. He lost everything. And so in that moment, he learned that God won't just throw you out there. Something unique, something supernatural happens. And typically, the people who complain about suffering in the life of someone else, they're coming at it from the outside rather than going through it from the inside. I'm not saying the pain and suffering's not real. I'm simply saying that in those times as a pastor that I've walked with people who face these kind of things, it's amazing how God gives them a special revelation of himself to open their eyes that this is not the final say. Okay, that's the point, that this is not the end. The second is the child the boy or little boy or little girl who goes through the suffering. In 2 Samuel, David loses his son and he makes a very powerful statement. He says, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. God gave David a revelation that nobody else in the Old Testament had unless God specifically gave it to them. I mean, in the Old Testament, we're not talking about hell, uh, heaven and hell. We're not talking about Sheol. We're not talking about paradise. The only revelation they have in the Old Testament is Sheol, that you go to the grave when you die. Job discovers something through his suffering that, wait a minute, there is life after death. My Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth in the end. David learns something as he gets a special revelation from God that he will not, he will not see his son again on earth, but it's not the final story. He will go to his son one day and they will be reunited. 
So according to scripture and theologians in something that is called prevenient grace, as soon as the child dies, the child goes into the presence of the father, immediately in the presence of the arms of God to live with God throughout eternity. So as a parent, when you get that great understanding that yes, you've lost something and yes, the pain is real. The reality is there will be a great reunion and you will be rejoined with that child. And when you are, remember what we said, this is not compensation. This is God replacing what you've lost to an infinitely greater degree. There will be a union and a reunion between mother and child, between father and daughter, father and son. The second victim in this death of a child is the skeptic who denies God because he says this is such an evil act. Well, we just spent the previous side of the board showing you where he has no basis of condemnation. Think about it. In the atheist worldview, nature is red in tooth and claw. So the question I have is why are you upset at evil and suffering when your worldview says there's no meaning or purpose to life? And everything is based on the survival of the fittest. So this is nature's way of ridding the world of the weak so the strong may survive. My question to you is, as an atheist, as someone on the outside looking in, why are you upset? There's no meaning in life. There's no real purpose to life. Somebody dies, okay. It's just us strengthening the gene pool. It's natural selection. Let me answer that question for you. The reason you struggle with it is because you know down deep inside God exists. And the reason you know God exists is because you know that life is sacred. And life can only be sacred and meaningful if there is a God who created it. Otherwise, if we're all here by accident, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and there should be no sadness at the loss of life. The fourth victim is the questioner who's on the outside saying, and this is a big one, I don't understand why God gets to make arbitrary decisions. Why does he get to determine who lives or dies? And yet when I do that, it's seen as evil. Well, that's an easy one to answer. And the answer is twofold. Number one, you're not God. You don't have the power and the wisdom and the knowledge of how everything is working together. Yes, God could step in and save the life of a child. We don't know why because we're not God, but we know he can recover he recovers through a prevailing presence, through the fact that the child goes immediately into his presence for eternity and for the reality that what God made the first time, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the second time he remakes life, it's far greater than the first. Did you hear that? When the child goes into the presence of God, they don't only go in in an equality basis, the life they're now given, the latter life is far more glorious than the former life. So God, when he chooses to allow a life to come to the end, or even if it's possible in some scenarios where God uses a life for his purposes and then calls them to heaven, the reality is we can't do that because we can't recover. But he can because the God who gave life the first time can give life the second time and the second life is far greater. Now, even though that all works philosophically, existentially, propositionally. We still have to deal with the fact of how, how do we help each other? Because let me ask you something. The things that we just discovered, does that make the pain and suffering any less real or intense in the person who's going through it? No, these are ideas. These are truths that we have to grapple with. But to tell you the truth, they won't really help a person at the depths at which the person needs to be helped when they're going through the loss of a child or something that is so devastating, the loss of a loved one or a spouse or the estrangement of their children. 
Now, this is where we come to Revolution, Resolution 7. And Resolution 7 basically says this, I will stay off God's throne. I will stay off God's throne. In Judges chapter 8, Gideon and his 300 men, this is the end of the story, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkot, give my troops some bread, they're worn out. And I'm still pursuing Zebah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkot said, do you already have the hands of Zebah and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zebah and Zalmunna into the hand, into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there, he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkot had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now you look at that. It's not quite the end, but I want to paint the scene for you again. Gideon has just defeated the Midianites. Many of them are running away now. He's chasing them with 300 men. To our knowledge, without asking God, he comes and he needs food from these two villages. Both the villages deny him food and water. And he's so frustrated with them because he knows God is doing a mighty work that he says, okay, when I get through with these guys, I'm going to come back and take care of you. Now, scholars believe that each of these tribes were 15,000 strong, at least minimal, probably not counting women and children. And so Gideon is so filled now with faith that God wants to end this atrocity, this impoverishing that's happening because of the Midianites, that he's going to finish the job. In fact, Judges 6.13 says, if you are with us, remember, this is what Gideon said to God when God first approached him. If you're with us, where all these miracles our forefathers told us about when you parted the Red Sea and fell the walls of Jericho. Now, what happened between chapter six and chapter eight when Gideon first did not believe that God could rescue or would rescue, and now he's so confident that God will, he doesn't even go to God for more instructions. He now just wants to complete the task, even if it means 300 men against 30,000 plus the Midianites who are running away. So the question is, did God successfully build Gideon's faith? And the answer is, you bet your military boots he did. With just 300 men, he now pursues thousands. Listening and obeying the voice of God way back when the battle began, he now has a sense that God somehow is sovereignly directing him, granting him one adventure after the next, leading to the greatest victory of Israel's existence, or at least one of them. Given that, given what God has been able to do in Gideon's life, he's created a, 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 a giant slayer. Here's the question. We now know what God can do. We're confident that he can, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We're confident that he who did not spare his own son will surely give us all good things. We're confident that God will work everything together for good. But here's the question. Does that make our pain any less real or intense? That is a question. It's one we have to grapple with, even though we know all these things philosophically, propositionally, and even existentially that God will come to us in our time of need. Does it make the pain any less real? And the answer is, I don't believe so. Well, what's missing then? The book of Job forces us to admit a lot of things. And one of the things it forces us to admit in the first few verses of Job is number one, Popular in Job's day was the doctrine of retribution. And the thought was this. It's, it comes from uh, Mesopotamian uh, wisdom literature. The thought is this, that if you're righteous, it always results in prosperity. And if you're unrighteous, it results in suffering. So if you're experiencing blessing, you're a good person. 
If you're experiencing suffering, you're a bad person. The, the story of Job throws that rut out the window because we're told that Job is an upright, righteous, blameless man. So from the get-go, we're told, hey, suffering sometimes comes into your life and it has nothing to do whether you're unrighteous or righteous. Now, we're not told what it does have to do with other than the glory of God and the revelation of God, but there's still a point at which we stop and God begins. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. If evil disproves God's existence, does goodness confirm God's existence? That's something I always ask the skeptic. You're telling me that the presence of evil means that God does not exist. What about the presence of all the good in the world? When you see those things, does that take your mind toward God? Job's statement is definitely a theological one. He is saying to his wife, what good is it to curse you God? Will he stop existing like if I deny Just his existence? For I don't think so. Jeff Vines, wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.